Hello and welcome back to the Music History Project. This week's episode is going to be all about music publishing. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Hey, thanks for joining us. Today we're going to be focusing on music publishing, uh, kind of a very specific focus in terms of we're going to be hearing stories from people who were kind of inspired firsthand, whether they were um, publishing music for a specific project or perhaps they were a music teacher and listening to their students be inspired, help them develop method books, Uh, those kind of firsthand accounts of, you know, the boots on the ground. And throughout the uh, podcast today, we're going to hear from a couple of celebrity songwriters as well. Uh, Richard Sherman of the Sherman Brothers, who brought us a ton of great hits for the Disney uh, institution. And uh, Ray Parker Jr., who gave us Ghostbusters. And we're going to start off with a a gentleman that you probably know very well. uh, Many of his uh, popular songs uh, starting in the 70s and all the way up until recently. Uh, But along the way, as Elizabeth said, we're going to pop in a few of the music music publishers, some of the folks who ran music publishing companies, and then some of the authors of very popular method books that have inspired a whole generation of folks to play music. So uh, we're excited to kind of weave this story together and uh, hopefully inspire a little bit too. This first story, if I can just jump right into it, is uh, Paul Williams talking about working with uh, uh, Jim Henson, and writing a song for Kermit the Frog. And what I love about it is that there is some great inspirational uh, pep talk kind of going on with this and some great ideas to just sort of generally be inspired uh, by listening to this. So here's Paul Williams talking about writing The Rainbow Connection. I went to England to do The Muppet Show when the first season of The Muppet Show, and I was a huge fan of Henson's. I mean, before I knew they were Muppets, I loved, you know, the, on, on Ed Sullivan, he had dancing slinkies and a monster that sang, uh, uh, I've grown accustomed to your face while he dis- disassembled his face, whatever. Ra- an early version of Rolf the Dog on, on the Jimmy Dean Show. Well, I loved everything Jim Henson did from the moment I saw his work. And when we met in, in, uh, in London, there was a, just an immediate connection. He said, you know, we're gonna do a, a project for HBO called Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas. And it's a, a little Christmas story about a family of otters and all, and, and would you be interested in writing the music for it, the songs? I said, yeah, so I wrote the songs for that. Still a favorite, favorite project, very low tech. You can see the strings on the marionettes, and you know. But we got along great, and, and after that, you know, he said, you know, we're now going on onto the big screen with the Muppet movie. Would you write the songs for the Muppet movie? And I said, yes, but let me bring in Kenny Asher. Kenny and I had just written the songs for A Star Is Born, almost all of them except for Evergreen that I wrote with Barbara. But I wrote most of the songs with Kenny Asher. I said, he has a great classical sound to his melodies. They're, they are as classy as, as Kermit and Piggy deserve. So I brought Kenny Asher in. We met at my house in the Hollywood Hills 
and sat there and talked about what the movie was going to be about. Okay, it's going to be about it's going to be a road picture about how the Muppets get together, how they go to Hollywood. Why are they going to Hollywood? Because there's a search on for frogs that want to become rich and famous. Good, write that down. You know. So you know, I said, where do we, where do we start? He said, well. We start with Kermit sitting in the swamp and on a lily pad. I said, okay, it turned out to be a log because it's easier to hide Jim in a log than a lily pad. But what, what's he doing? And Jim thought a minute and he went, he's playing the banjo. I went, of course he is, you know, all right. And so Kenny and I sat down to write this first song and, and, and one of the great conversations ever was walking to the, to the car with Jim. And I said, you know, we won't leave you in the dark on this as we're working on the songs, Kenny, and I'll show them to you. And Jim said, oh, that's all right. I'll hear them in the studio when we record them, which was a display of trust that you, where do you go to find that in the world today? That you, I trust, you know, I trust you to, to write the, the right song, and, and Kenny and I did. We gave him the rainbow connection. And what we basically thought was, Okay, this frog is, is, first of all, this is every frog. This is Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. This is in the midst of the tornado. This is the sensible, calm guy that's trying to, you know, just stay connected and lead people. You know, he's, he's not up to the task, but he's up to the task. He's Kermit the Frog. He's got water, he's got air, he's got light. What does he have? He has rainbows. He has the So it just started to roll out of us. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? What's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions. Rainbows have nothing to hide. And we went, oh, now we've done it. We've written ourselves into a corner where we've taken all the magic out of rainbows, you know. So we have to turn it around. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong. Wait and see. Someday we'll find it. da dee da 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 ba They're lovers, the dreamers, and me. And we couldn't figure out what it was. We're sitting with my, my then-wife at the time, Kenny, my, Kenny and I, and... and Katie was putting dinner on the table for us. She said, you guys have been going da 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 da, da for hours. What's going on? I said, we're looking for the connection to the rainbow. There's, there's, a, there's a rainbow connection with, of, of how this whole thing, uh, we can't figure it out. She said, you're looking for a rainbow connection. And we went, a rainbow connection? She said, yeah, that's what you just called it. I went, that's what we just called it. We ran and wrote, someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. My favorite line in the song is, who said that every wish would be heard and answered of wished on a morning star? Somebody thought of that and someone believed it. Look what it's done so far. The implication is that we all have great power. There's power in your thoughts. At the end of the movie, we did a rewrite of a bit of it. Life's like a movie, write your own ending. Keep believing, keep pretending. We've done just what we set out to do. Thanks to the lovers, the dreamers, and you. I think it's a song that, that honors the questions more than the answers, and I think it's a song that empowers the listener, that, that if you believe in something enough, if you believe enough, that you just might pull it off. You just might do what we were able to do, thanks to the lovers, the dreamers, and you. The continuing success of, you know, of, of, of the Muppets is due to the love of the fans. So. If you're a Muppet fan, you're a part of their success and a part of mine. So thank you. That was Paul Williams talking about writing The Rainbow Connection for Kermit the Frog. And uh, that brought back a lot of unique childhood memories for <laughs> <Def> myself. <laughs> Definitely one of those songs that you heard a lot as I, a kid. I can just picture Kermit riding the bicycle and playing the banjo like <laughs> in my head right now. 
Um, <clears throat> so we're going to move right along to our next guest, who's going to be Mark Gibson, who is a publisher, music publisher based out of Australia. I don't like to be too critical, but, you know, most of the uh, Tudor books that come from North America are basically all the same. You know, they're, they're different around the edges and they, they look a bit different, but in terms of methodology, they're pretty much the same. And my theory is that's because publishers basically have control, you know, what goes out there. So they've got a, they've got a lot of input onto what people teach and how they teach, and they're not going to take any big risks because if people have been doing it that way for, you know, goodness knows how many years, does anyone really want to take the risk of changing it? Because you could you lose your customer base. Whereas we're quite the opposite because we're the new kid on the block. We basically have to be different uh, because we can't compete on price. Uh, we wanted to be different anyway. So our whole methodology um, is quite different to others in that you know, music is a language and all language starts with listening and then you start speaking it and reading and writing comes much later. So in other words, you do it and then you sort of uh, learn about how, how you did it, how you knew what to do, the whole mother tongue approach, which is uh, basically the Suzuki idea. So our methodology includes Suzuki ideas, Delcros, Orf, Kodai, Yamaha method, um, some traditional elements, and you put it all together and uh, you get our encore approach. So we also use um, a lot of body percussion because, because the, the engine room of music is rhythm. And it doesn't matter which music style you go to, you're going to find it's rhythm. Yeah, just about every tutor book, doesn't matter what instrument it is, they're all mostly to do with pitch. And then, after they've taught people pitch, it's like, oh, now we have to organise these notes. You've got to play in time. It's, it's time to count. But counting doesn't actually give you the rhythm. Counting just says, oh, look, this is the beat. But notes can come before the beat, after the beat. You can have several notes on one beat. R rhythm is something apart from counting. And counting is only one way to learn rhythm. So I'd say that what makes us very different is the way we teach rhythm. The fact that we treat rhythm as number one because the notes have to be organised and it's the rhythmic groove that almost determines style. So to teach rhythm we do a lot of body percussion. We use props such as rainbow rings, streamers, parachutes, uh, as well as percussion instruments. But body, it's got to start with body percussion. Rhythm something that you have to feel. And then once you've done it and feel it, then you can say, oh, this is the notation, this is what it looks like, this is what you did. Uh, then it's like, well, the notes. Well, if you're teaching piano or keyboard, it's so easy because it's in front of you. They're like pictures. So we use a lot of keyboard mats. So we do a lot of modelling on mats. And if you've got mats, that means you can put dots and Velcro dots on them so you can bring the whole thing to life so children can model what they're going to play before they play it. That means before they play a piece, they can do it through body percussion. You can reinforce that uh, through a prop. You can also play it on percussion instruments. You can show them where the notes live on the keyboard. You can then show them the, the technique just on a keyboard mat. So when they actually go to play it, they actually know the whole piece. So from the moment, the first time they actually play it on an instrument, it sounds great. Now that's the difference between us and traditional approaches. Traditional approaches is like, they'll keep working at it on the instrument until it sounds good. Sounds good. We'll have it already sounding good before they touch the instrument. And yet it all happens in the one lesson. Uh, so it's all about getting those teaching steps uh, in the right sequence. And so it puts a very positive spin on the way we teach. Because a lot of teaching is sometimes the opposite, where the student doesn't get it right, then the teacher's always trying to fix it up. And uh, after a while you can get into a rut like that where you know, the, the it can become a little bit negative. Uh, because we do it the other way, we, we set everybody up to be successful. 
And of course, we, we know that you know, not everybody's going to get it, be successful the first time, but we've set a framework that's going to make it easy to, uh, to sort things out. And it also sets a framework where the teacher becomes more diagnostically attuned to, okay, if it doesn't work for this student, why didn't it? Did I leave out a teaching step? Or is there something that this child doesn't quite get? You know, is there a coordination issue I haven't thought about? So it really does sort of change the whole paradigm. And, the other, and, and because we've got all these different things in the learning process, you can't put that in the student book. It'll be too cluttered. So that's where our method is quite different in our book. So we decided that the student book has to look like a book that the students are going to love. There's no need to put any information there for the teachers. It's got to be there for the students. It's their book. Um, so therefore, we've got separate teacher guides. And the thing about the teacher, by having a separate teacher guide, that gives us a lot of flexibility because we'll keep inventing new ways to teach. We'll, get, we'll keep getting new ideas. That means the student book can virtually stay the way it is, but the teacher guide can keep evolving. There are some creative teachers out there can add extra layers to that, and we're very happy for them to do so. And in fact, you know, I've picked up some of their ideas because you know, I just love working with creative people who say, wow, you know, I thought of doing this with the book. Um, but you know, the, I've found that the younger the age group, the more challenging it is for absolutely everybody because you can teach young children almost anything. You just have to figure out how to do it. Mm. That's, that's the real challenge. So once again, that was Mark Gibson talking about uh, music publishing in Australia. And next up, we're going to hear from Charlou Roberts. And she is a uh, accomplished method book author and has written many method books over the years. And she's going to be talking about her approach to writing method books and the process behind each book she writes. Everybody kind of says the same thing. There's hundreds and hundreds of method books out there, but they are somehow lacking in the way people are teaching something. And, in, and I had to become a teacher myself to understand what they meant. And now that I'm teaching, I kind of go, oh yeah, that's a great book. I can use that with this student, but it doesn't teach this. Or this is you know, missing from the method. Or gosh, why do they do this so quick? They have the kids moving their hand position down to C from the middle C position so quickly. You know, and there could have been at least you know, 20 more pages of songs for them to develop at, especially like the six-year-olds and seven-year-olds. They need a little bit more. So I have to go out and buy another book to be able to reinforce that for longer. And, I, and so I find myself that there's so many pieces missing from what I want to teach, and I have to go to several books to get it all in. And I know a lot of other piano teachers, music teachers, guitar teachers, whatever, are finding the same things. I work with guitar teachers and a lot of other instrument teachers where I, uh, at the school that I teach at. And um, everybody kind of says the same thing. There's just, there's always things missing from any methodology. So I understand these people that have been teaching their whole lives and want to get something um, more cohesive out there and you know and they've been doing their printouts and they've been doing their whatever copying other people's books and printouts they've been they've been putting things together piecing them together their whole lives and so yeah they've got great ideas but they haven't got a clue how to put a book an actual book together and know what to do with it and getting it out to the world so that other people could learn by it or teach through it or anything else. Maybe have an additional income on the side, you know, as they re retire, they might have 
you know, they want to have, they want to have um, kind of a little money on the side because they've been teaching. They want to pass that information on to other teachers, and you know, and they hope to make the cost back. It's hard though. The majority of my work for Hal Leonard and uh, Warner Brothers was guitar, guitar and bass, and other fretted instruments because that's where the that's where the money was. You know, when, when Tab got out there and all those old books had to be, you know, kind of redone but put in with Tab. Um, but, you know, let's face it, every, you know, 12-year-old boy in L.A. wants to be a rock star when they grow up and play guitar. So it wasn't as much the piano books or, you know, the saxophone books or anything else. It was, it was strictly guitar. And those have changed substantially all the, all the, all the years, but they've just, they've gotten slicker and I can't say that necessarily. I mean, some of the, the Hal Leonard method that I did back in the 90s, um, and I did a, a huge series of those, that, that was always cool too, when they'd give me a series, you know, and I'd do like eight books in a series. So it was job security, and I could use the same template and pump it out for the guitar book or the mandolin book in the same look, or I even did a book on oud, so awesome. <laughs> banjo, all these different instruments, but we could do, them, do a series like that. But those books in the 90s are still, still their major sellers now. So that was Charlou Roberts, and what's really neat to me is that uh, a lot of the behind-the-scenes authors, editors, uh, folks who are working in the publishing companies are women, and that's always been the case, going way back to the beginning uh, of Tin Pan Alley and uh, some of the music publishers out of New York. A lot of women have always been involved, and I think it's really neat that we've had the opportunity to document some of these stories. We have an, an, another one coming up a little bit later on in this uh, podcast, and I, to me, it just echoes the fact that this has never changed. This has always been the way it is, and I think only recently, maybe the last 30 years or so have uh, some of these women uh, actually have uh, gotten the uh, credibility or the, the credit rather that they uh, they deserve and for many years uh, maybe there would only be an initial next to the person's name so you wouldn't know it was uh, Charlou you would just know it was C. Roberts so it could be a man or a woman so those sight Little changes have made a big difference, obviously, in getting recognition. Uh, but I just love the fact that listening to her, you can tell her passion and her drive and her inspiration. And that is to, to make the best product possible to encourage more people to become music makers. And I really do think that that has a lot to do with the passion of all these guys that we're listening to uh, at this podcast. A lot of drive, a lot of inspiration from just the simple process of wanting to uh, encourage someone to be a music maker. So next up, we're going to hear from Keith. Hey, Dan, why don't you give us some background about him? So Keith Mardak was one of the first folks to get a, a special award that we created called the Oral History Service Award for his help with the uh, NAM uh, interview program. And uh, just a few years ago, he also received the, the coveted Dorothy Award, which is presented by RPMDA, which is the Print Music Dealers Association. And uh, so to tell you, this guy has been active in all elements of the industry is sort of an understatement. Uh, he uh, began in the 1960s in a, a small music publishing company and uh, later was able to purchase what is now the biggest music publishing company in the United States, probably the world, Hal Leonard. 
And along the way, he's never forgotten the roots. He really loves the history. He cares very much about the employees and is always focused on creating new product, again, to encourage other people. And I really appreciate this particular segment that uh, Mike found for us in his interview. I think it was Mike. Am I giving you the right credit? Uh, maybe. Okay. I'll take it. I don't <laughs> okay, know. Okay, take it. <laughs> <laughs> So this is, uh, this is Keith Mardak from his NAM Oral History interview. How do you see Zeb's role in the industry? What sort of things did he provide? Well, Zeb was the ultimate entrepreneur, the ultimate innovator. He, uh, I went to work for him in 1963, I believe, or 62, as an organ teacher, a part-time job. By day, I was a draftsman, I was an engineering student. And uh, Zeb became the largest single store seller of pianos and organs in the world, basically. Uh, he sold over a thousand units out of one location back then. Phenomenal. And he was a heavy promoter, and one concept he came up with was giving away an educational package with the sale of every instrument. He valued it at $100. And it, primarily it was free lessons, uh, valued at $3, and he paid the teacher a buck to teach it. I had a lot of those dollar students. And he gave away uh, 76, it was eight free lessons, and $76 worth of pointer system books from Hal Leonard. And that was the package. Well, soon everybody else in town could duplicate that. So he decided he wanted something that no one else could offer. And he gathered us teachers and a few salespeople together one night. And he had this vision for a package of music, a bunch of song sheets. So we bought what's called a music writer back then, uh, typewriter that was converted to music notes. And we started arranging songs, public domain songs, and uh, we ended up with 112 songs. Zip put a price, 45 cents, 50 cents, 60 cents, depending on the song. Put it in a plastic bag, still gave away the eight free lessons, uh, but he lowered his costs dramatically because buying this $76 worth of pointer system books cost him half, probably, $37, $38, and he could print this course for much less, or package of music. So he started to give that away, and no competitor could duplicate it quickly. Thomas Organ Company brought their biggest dealers to Puerto Rico, and each of the dealers had the opportunity to explain how they sold organs, what made them successful. It was Zeb's turn, he pulled out his package and he explained how he used it, and all of the dealers said, oh, can I buy that from you? It's fantastic, and I'm not in your market, so I wouldn't be competing with you. And he said, sure. They said, how much is it? And he said, $20 costing him 10. So one dealer took 500, one took 200, and so forth, and he came back with a bundle of orders and uh, a ton of money, you know, and he suddenly was exposed to the publishing world. But he didn't quite know what to do with it exactly, so he took it to the president of Thomas and said, why don't you just buy this from me, pay me a royalty, and use it for all your dealers? And he said, nah, I don't want to do that. So then Zeb took it to Wurlitzer, he was also a Wurlitzer dealer. And they said, nah. Then he took it to Hal Leonard. And they said no. <laughs> so finally he just decided it wasn't viable. But later that year he was at a Wurlitzer dealer meeting and they unveiled what they call the hobby lesson course. And they ripped them off. Uh, but they made it into a course with teaching manuals and copyrighted songs. It was pretty nice. Well that upset him. So he decided to really get into the publishing business in a significant way and he redesigned the course. I was given the task of writing manuals putting the songs in some sequence, educationally. We dressed it up and put it in a box and went into the 1965 trade show and sold it on a franchise basis to 
hopefully the biggest dealer in each city. And uh, I was still a teacher. I went to the show and uh, walked into the room. It was at the uh, Palmer House. And Zeb saw me and he said, come on in and just talk to people. Just hold them. We can't get to them all. <laughs> Stay overnight. You know, so I stayed overnight and I just started to help them out and talking to people and explaining the course. Got back from the show and the fellow that was going to run the publishing division, a fellow named John Skiba, was a salesman on the floor for Zeb. So I met with Zeb after the show and I said, I'd like to apply for John's job on the floor. And he said, I don't think you're a salesman. But we need somebody in the publishing thing to help Johnny. So I said, all right. I said, what do you pay me? He said, what are you making being a draftsman? I said, $550 a month. He said, I'll give you $500. So I took the job for $500 a month. And the publishing thing really grew substantially. And that's when Zeb came back and he sold the retail stores, came back into publishing. And we had a nice five run. We went from zero to about $3.5 million in sales by the, when I left. It was a unfortunate parting. I, I, I know I hurt Zeb's feelings at the time and I didn't mean to, but you know, I was his guy and I left him. But we got back together socially and, and uh, some years later, and actually in 19, uh, they all run together, I think 1991, I bought his company, Sight and Sound, and he retired. Hmm. Well, I bought half, well, the music book side, and, and again, innovation, he created what are called the sound storybooks, which are books with keyboards on them and you could play little songs and things. And he sold that to Western Publishing and got a lot of money for, you know, on that sale. Western has since gone. We're still here. So again, that was Keith Mardak, kind of a music publishing institution these days. So we're really lucky to have him part of the collection. And as always, you can hear Keith's interview as well as any others you hear today in the podcast by visiting our website, which is at www.nam.org library. And so now we got to ask Mike a very important question. For our next interview, Mike, who are you going to call? Well, the correct answer would be Ghostbusters, but <laughs> in this case, we're going to call the writer of that, uh, Ray Parker Jr. What a cool interview. Like, as a kid of the late 80s, early 90s, who grew up watching all the Ghostbuster flicks, it's real cool to see that as part of our collection. So, here's Ray. Rising with Stevie Wonder. And you played on a, a cup for him in 72, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I went on tour with him and played. He, he wanted me to join his band. He called me up um, on the phone. I don't know how he got my phone number. He says, this is, hello, this is Stevie Wonder. I hung up the phone, I don't know, four or five times. <laughs> said some words that I shouldn't mention on the air. You know? <laughs> I thought it was one of my friends joking around with me because music from my mind I thought was a masterpiece. You know, It's still, to me, the greatest album I've ever heard. And I just knew somebody was jerking me around, you know. And he says, no, this is really Stevie Wonder. I heard about you, and, you know, I want you to come on tour with me. And he said, you know, we keep getting disconnected, though. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, you know, this is really me. Stop hanging up the phone. So he played me the rhythm track to Superstition. And that's how I knew it was him. Oh, he played it? He had just started, yeah. So he played it on the phone for me. He says, here, listen to this. So he played me a little bit of it on the phone. I was like, oh, my gosh, I've been hanging up on Stevie Wonder. <laughs> so I think I was just turning 18 years old, and uh, he wanted me to come to Los Angeles, I mean, excuse me, San Francisco first, and we are going to work on an album for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Then we are going to go to L.A., do the talking book album, overdub some of that, and then we did some more Electric Lady in New York, and then we are going on tour with the Rolling Stones. 
So I dropped out of college. I went to college early, and I was in, I was in a year early anyway because I graduated early. And that was a big conversation with my dad, you know, what are we going to do? And, and uh, this is a point in my life where you can either go, and a lot of musicians out there that are listening to this, I'm sure they've had this same experience. Because, you know, music, you don't have to make any money. You can be broke, broke, broke. Everybody tells you how stupid you are. I tell you, you need a backup plan and all the rest of this stuff. And in my opinion, you, you, if you're a true musician, you, you're not hearing that. you got to burn the backup plan. There is no backup plan. If God blessed you or, or cursed you, however you want to look at it, with this musical gift, it's just something you got to do. It's just there is no sideways or there or anything. So for me, I had to explain to my dad that it's your dream that you want me to work at Ford and build car parts and get a pension and welfare plan and security and get a paycheck and all that. I just wanted to play the music. You know? So I told him I had to go with my heart, I wanted to play the music. So he finally understood that and let me go. Wow. And that's when I just dropped the books, walked out of college and never returned. Wow, and then... Now, it wasn't a bad choice, I had too. Going on tour with the Rolling Stones and Stevie Wonder. That's, if you're going, that's a good way to go. Yeah. Get a decent gig in front of you there. Yeah, but it was a nice experience for me because Stevie Wonder personally taught me how to write songs. And he listened to the little clips of things that I was playing around with and he said, well, you know, you can do that and do this. and. Next thing you know, I was writing songs, you know, what which you I did. And while I was in L.A., I'll never forget, I was at Spago's looking across the street, and there was a black billboard with a circle on it. I was like, what, what the heck that is, you know? Well, little did I know, later that day, somebody called me up, my friend Gary LaMail, who I worked with, with Barry White. That's where the connection comes in. So everything ties together, right? And he called me up. He says, I got this film. I want you to do. He says, you may have seen these billboards around town. They're just black, and they put a circle out. He says, not next week they're going to put the ghost in. Then the film comes out. He says, we ain't got no music, right? I think, oh, yeah, I saw that thing. He says, you got to write this. He says, I think you're the right guy to write the song for this film. He says, let me show you the film. And They told me they hired a, a million people to write the song. They weren't happy with anything they got. And he says, because the director wants the words Ghostbusters in the song. If you, it's not fair because you've heard my version of it now, but that's a really hard word to say. Ghostbusters. Yeah, I mean, no matter how you do it, it doesn't come out right, you know. And so I told him that I really wasn't working anymore. He says, well, what are you doing in L.A.? I says, I'm doing new this. Just where are you working there? You know and I think the offer at that time was, was he, he said, I'll give you 50 grand, spend two days, two or three days, think about it. And if we don't like the music, keep the money, right? It was only 20 seconds of music in a certain little scene, but of course, I'm a musician, I can't do 20 seconds, so I did a minute and a half of music, which I thought was way too much. And uh, came up with that little jingle, little concept, played it for the director. He woke me up at three, four o'clock in the morning after I had no sleep for two or three days in a row. And he says, I love it. Can we make it a record? I and mean, he was just going on. He had taken a cassette and flown it into the 35 millimeter mag. This is Ivan Reitman, and he just loved it. And then he really propelled the whole thing. He said, we need, we need to make a record. Let's do this, let's do that. And it just kind of grew from there. Okay. Yeah. And that's the story of who you going to call. You know? What I love about Ray Parker Jr. is that he does, he, he makes no bones about the fact that he knows everybody on the planet knows that song. That's what is so cool. And he just kind of strolls around the NAMM show and people come up and want to have a picture and whatnot. And he rolls with it. And as you could tell in the uh, the clip there, he loves talking about it. You know, it's a it's a neat chapter in his life. And I think it's really cool to have that as part of our collection. My favorite was uh, when I was organizing Dan's CD collection, maybe about six months ago or something like that for our archives here. 
uh, there was one signed by Ray from, I'm su- assuming you got it signed when you did the interview with him. Yeah. And he's got the Ghostbusters song on it, like six different versions. <laughs> <laughs> so he really embraces it, which is so awesome. Cause a lot of times when you see guys who don't, who kind of have like one, their one big like yeah, claim to fame, right. really resent it, but. And never want to play it never or wanna, talk about yeah, it. Yeah. So I think it's really cool. Cause that's what people want to hear. They want to hear right. him, you know, ask them who he, he, they're going to call and. <laughs> yell Ghostbusters and stuff like that. So, um, okay, we're going to move right along to um, another method book author, Jane Bastian. And Jane just passed away this year? Yeah, Jane uh, lived in La Jolla, California and worked uh, with the uh, Chose Music Company down there and um, really provided with, along with her husband, some amazing method books, mostly for piano. And what I really like about this uh, clip that's actually not part of her web clip, but another segment from her interview is sort of the real human side of it. You know, she's talking a little bit about when she had kids and some other people that she was working with had kids. They had to lug them around and they were trying to do these concerts and trying to promote her books and the kids were crawling around. And I don't know, it just to me, it, it, it puts a more human uh, face to the that very famous name that you see on all those uh, method books. I grew up seeing her name on my mom's piano bench and it's kind of cool to have the opportunity to, to have interviewed her and now uh, that she's passed away, it's uh, neat to remember uh, the impact that she had. In addition to the method book, she was also quite a music advocate. She went around to schools, churches, and uh, community groups all over the place promoting not just uh, her method book, but how important music and music education is to each community. So for her uh, efforts, I tip my hat to her. And uh, let's play this clip in memory of Jane Bastian. My husband was much more of a performing artist than I was at that time, and he loved to perform. And um, so he was always pushing me to practice, you know, to get with it and learn the pieces and so on. Anyway, we played two pianos, and we started that way, and we would have to give faculty recitals both at Tulane, and then later, a couple of years later, he went over to Loyola because the main piano position was open there, and that was Loyola College of Music, which was actually a music school. And um, so anyway, we would have to give recitals at both colleges each year. So we would prepare these recitals and play them. And um, then he decided he would work on a doctorate. And so he went to the University of Michigan in the summer. And I went also. And I thought that I might take some piano lessons. And But you know, I just decided I didn't really want to take piano lessons there. What I really wanted to do was to write a book that I could use for my students. And so um, I spent my time doing that, and he worked toward the doctorate. And then we, um, you know, I came out with the books. Well, then that's when I met Neil. I was looking for somebody to copy the book. And a lady at the music store in Ann Arbor told me, she said, you know, the Midwest Band Clinic is going on over at the university. She said, why don't you go over there and see if you could find Don Gillis, who was going to copy the music for me. But he had just gotten married, et cetera, et cetera, and wasn't available. But anyway, when I walked in, there was Neil Chose. And I had known him in college. We had gone to school together. and. Uh, so he said, so what are you doing? And I said, oh, I've written a book and I'm trying to get somebody to copy it so that my students can read it and I want to try it out and see how it works and so on. And he said, oh, well, I'll help you with it. 
And so we, um, I started putting together pages that he could, we did it on a mimeograph machine, a Xerox machine in those days. And uh, he put out a little book, you know, just with the simple binding and so on. And I used it for a year and then started revising. And then in 1963, um, my first book came out, which was Pre-Reading Experiences. And um, it was just the way I taught, basically, at that time. And uh, so then two or three other books came out. Then we all started having babies. I had a baby. Neil and Barbara had a baby. Uh, I had another baby, etc. But in the meantime, my husband decided that he would not do the doctorate, that instead he would write technique books to go along with my books. And so he got started in this, and he really, really liked it. He was really good at organizing all the material, and he loved to cut and paste and figure out how it would go on the page, and he was really patient, and also he was just a workaholic. I mean, he, he did it every single day for a certain number of hours, and then he went and played tennis in the afternoon. And so that was his life at that point. And um, so then Neil said, well, I really think you should do some workshops. So I had a baby at that time, and um, I could just remember that we took the mother and two students that I was teaching, and we went to Dallas. We went first to San Antonio, to Southern Music, and then we went to Dallas, Whittles, and then we went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we did three workshops. We had the mother who was a nurse taking care of our baby. We took her, it was really, it was just a scene. And, um, you know, I was worried about what was happening, and half the night we were up and so on with the baby, you know, but the mother was with her kids. And then these students demonstrated and showed what they had learned and so on. So that was sort of our first workshop, and we showed our books, and that was the beginning. I always end my workshops and I really do this on a, honestly every day by thinking I just hope that I can teach every child as though he were my very best student and then he can use it for whatever he needs to and then we can sleep at night right <laughs> I can sleep at night without feeling guilty <laughs> but I do think it's important because I, I mean music plays such a big part in kids lives the discipline of it the doing it right the one two three how to learn you're learning it on a one-to-one -one basis with one person over a long period of time you don't have to change every year you know I mean a lot of the students I teach for 12 years and all the way through you know and um, it's, it's a different kind of relationship. So now my big thing is when I go to New York to visit my daughter at Thanksgiving, there's loads of our students that are back there and they can't come home for Thanksgiving. So they come to New York and we all have a big dinner. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. So it's really been a great life. So once again, that was Jane Bastian. It's always good hearing from her. And next up, we are going to hear from Brian Bradley, who was actually the president of Alfred and is currently the president of JBL. And Brian does a good job of talking about how important the publishing industry is um, still to this day and how, um, even with changes in technology, um, how publishing will stay relevant in the years to come. So here's Brian. Music publishing is a great business. In fact, even more than audio, it's probably my favorite part of our business because it's really the, the heart of it. It's where everything else starts. I mean, you know, we can make great audio gear, 
Fender Gibson can make a great guitar, whatever, but it's that, that's just a, that's just a paint color, you know? The actual portrait that gets created is what that music publishing represents, you know what I mean? It's the heart of it all. And so, you know, I think, I think it's unfortunate the way we treat those rights holders and those creative people. I mean, I think they kind of get the short end of the stick, though I believe that's changing because now that with the way people consume music through downloads, through the fan base sort of being, it's now direct from that artist to the fan base, really. So that publishing there is about as close to the artist as you can get, you know, in terms of the songwriter. So they're really, I think, going to benefit from that relationship as that goes forward. If they can keep fighting for the rights in Congress and stuff, they, they, they deserve. But um, I love that business. And, and, and I think technology only helps it. I remember when I was at Alfred, one of the things a lot of people would say is, well, you know, you guys are doing print. And don't you think that um, at that time the iPad and all of this is going to kill your business, right? No one's buying a book anymore. You just get a download. And I said, well... Actually, I'd look at it the other way. I think every time the iPad or another technology platform comes out, it actually enhances your business. And my example to that is film. So my, let's probably tell you too much about me, but my favorite movie is Fletch. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I can recite that entire movie. I've watched it well over 100 times. I think it's the funniest thing ever made. Um, and it came out in the 80s, and I saw that movie in the movie theater and loved it. And then it came out on VHS, and I bought that because I wanted to watch that on video. And then it came out on DVD, and I bought that because I wanted to watch it on DVD. And that came available on iTunes just as a download, and I bought it again because I love that content, right? That content to me is something I want to continue to consume, and so that as the way we consume um, content changes, I'm rebuying the good content over and over again so that I can still now consume it in the way I want to do it. Now, so I've got the movie on my iPad. So same thing. You know, when I was at Alfred, you find that if, if you got a great piano method or drum method or whatever, and someone's been using it as a book, if they start to use it as an iPad, they'll buy it again to put it on their iPad. You know, they, they'll, they'll want to... Get the, so I, I don't think technology threatens that in the long term at all. And in the case of Hal Leonard and Alfred and Music Sales and some of those other companies that are really involved in music education, I mean, man, the rest of us should be pumping money into those companies. You know what I mean? That's, those guys are the ones creating our future customers. And so, you know, we, we all got to be supporting the stuff that those guys do because that's where, that's where all our future customers come from. That was Brian Bradley summing up a great point about some of the fears I think uh, music publishers have and really kind of squashing them and saying, you know, yeah, it, it matters. It really, ma and it always matters and it will continue to matter. Definitely. And I would say most people probably think the way that he was talking, like, you know, oh, well, now technology's out and who needs to buy books anymore? Like, right. But he makes a really good point. Like, you're always going to keep buying the same old stuff you have on the new forms of media. So mm -hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Well said. So now we have a special treat for all those who stuck this one out and are still listening to the podcast. Uh, I think a great way to close this up is a, a familiar name. Um, perhaps, you, actually, you may not know the name Richard Sherman, but you certainly know his music. 
Um, and this is a, a clip from Richard Sherman's interview for the NAM Oral History Program just a few years ago where we got to sit down with him at the Disney Studios in Los Angeles and talk to him a little bit about his take on music publishing. Did you guys, have you heard this clip? I did, and I think it's just a small world that we're finishing off with it. Oh, my oh. goodness. But, um, bomb. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the puns are heavy today. <laughs> <laughs> you know that he was uh, just in the process of having a doorbell ringer with It's a Small World. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I, oh, I just saw his wife's look. That would drive me insane. But how wonderful that he... Uh, he gets some royalties for that. Well, yeah, and he talks about it in the interview about how it's the reason it's such like a new kind of a new American standard is because it like worms into your brain, and that's that's what people love and hate about that song. Well, how many times right? does it play when you're on the ride once? It's got to be like, and if the boats stop, <laughs> <laughs> you are stuck. Well, doesn't he doesn't he talk about that in his interview about how when the song was first put out, like you have to hit. X amount of like plays with Disney before they consider it like a new American standard or something like that. And It's a Small World hit that like in a record amount of time mm -hmm. be just because of the rides in California, Florida. And then I think they were using it in a parade or something like that mm -hmm. too. So he hit like the standards number, which is like thousands. Yeah. Well, within I mean, like a week or something. Yeah. You got to think about it. Like if that ride's running 12 hours a day, it's right. playing on repeat, not stopping at all. Right. Tw uh, you know, 365 days of the year, mm -hmm. you're going to hear a lot of It's a Small World. <laughs> well, it's also funny <laughs> to me thinking about this guy because he it kind of harkens to my favorite songwriter, Irving Berlin, who people would say, you know, about White Christmas and God Bless America, they were sort of written on the fifth day or something like They've always mm -hmm. been around. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how I feel about almost all of his songs. I mean, um, Super Califragilistic, um, you know, the, the, the Tigger song, which he actually sings a bit for us in this clip coming up. Um, you know, these songs are just a part of who we are and it's neat to think, Oh, this is the guy and his brother who brought them to us. Yeah. I think that's super neat. Cause it's like you said, it's almost like a mythical status. Like it just mm -hmm. appeared one day, but hearing the story behind it all, or in this case, hearing the voice, or if you log onto the website, seeing the face behind it all, it's just, I don't know, mind blowing. And, it, you know, in a slightly different vein, but interesting to me that when I was listening to him uh, tell this story the first time during the interview, um, I realized I always kind of considered um, Walt Disney like Uncle Walt, you know, mm -hmm. like a member of the family. We're going to go and see Uncle Walt's place. And, and um, to hear, here's a guy who worked with him and knew him and called him Walt. And uh, so that was really another aspect of it that I think is really important uh, to, to portray. And that is, you know, this is the guy who lived that life. And these are the opportunities that he had. And in the end, what he was most proud of is the fact that he created music that we all know and hum along to and brightens our day. Mm -hmm. And his brother is no longer living, correct? That's right, He's passed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And is Richard, because you interviewed him last year, 2016. Right. So he was he still working? Because you guys met at the studios. Well, I think he came in. I don't know that he's officially working, but he's always doing something. Right. They're asking him to come back to do an anniversary of The Jungle Book, another movie that he wrote all the music for. Um, and so as anniversaries come up and things like that, they commission him to write another piece or an update or maybe change the lyrics to uh, include a celebration 
that sort of thing. Mm. So he's he's still very very active, right? Uh, even though I'm sure he's uh, he's well retired. Yeah. So anyway, it was a real treat um, to uh, to get to know these guys, and I'm so glad that we could compile this um, podcast of music publishers and songwriters to give a little shout out to that part of the music products industry. Uh, a special thanks to Elizabeth and Mike for putting this together. It's always neat to hear these uh, segments and used in different ways. And uh, so with that, I'd like to introduce Richard Sherman. We didn't know this at the time, but Walt Disney was a great fan of Annette. He used to listen to all her songs. And so we were asked to write some more songs for Annette, for her recordings. And so we did a number of big hits for her, uh, Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy and Pineapple Princess, it became a big hit for her, and a lot of album songs that we had written, creative songs for her albums. And uh, t not to our knowledge, Walt Disney was listening to all these songs. He liked our songs. And so one day she was going to do a film at the studio, and it was called The Horse Masters. And he, he said to the head of the music department, ask the Sherman brothers, those two brothers, if they want to take a shot at writing a song for Annette for this movie. So we didn't know it was Annette. We didn't know it was Walt that was sent the request. So, but the studio did. And we said, wow, sure, we'll try it. So we wrote a little song called Strummin' Song. And he wrote it for her to sing in this little picture called The Horse Masters. And uh, when he brought it to the, to the studio to play for this uh, administrator, he said, I like it, but Walt's got to hear it. He hears everything goes in. So he said, Walt who? He says, well, Walt Disney, of course. Who else? It's his studio. We didn't realize this, but we were going to have a meeting with Walt Disney himself. We were not prepared for that. But we said, well, shouldn't we get somebody to sing it? I mean, he likes to hear the raw material from the writer. So there I was sitting and singing and playing strumming song for him for the first time and he liked it and his comment was yeah that'll work now listen he was he had mistakenly talked about a different picture when he first sat down with him so he said why don't you take a shot at writing this other thing since uh, uh, since I wasted all my time talking about the wrong picture so it happened to be the parent trap we didn't know at the time but he asked us to write some songs for that so we wrote uh, a song brought it in he liked it very much. He says that could be uh, used in the, in the love scene where they're singing about the scene. I need a title song, and we have a title called The Parent Trap. So we wrote a song called The Parent Trap, and we wrote another song for the two, two sisters who are plotting together to sing called Let's Get Together, Yay, 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 a little rock and roll song. And he liked that. But he never said anything like, I like it, or gee, that's great. He'd always say, yeah, that'll work. Now listen, try this. And he started testing us, and then he gave us more assignments. He kept, we kept coming to the studio, and we wrote, I think we had about six or seven songs accepted for productions. And one day he handed us a book, and the book was called Mary Poppins by Pamela Travers. And of course, he said, read this book and tell me what you think. He didn't say, I need a song for this, or I need a title for this. He just said, read this book and tell me what you think. And of course, the rest is history. We thought a lot of the book. <laughs> we thought it could be a marvelous musical. And uh, we came up with a lot of good ideas, I think. He liked them. He said, yep, that'll work. And eventually, we played one song. I remember we played a song called Feed the Birds. And it was, we felt it was the theme of the whole movie. Because the father 
was being, in our story, the way we were telling it, was not paying attention to the children. They were becoming rowdy. And the, children, and the, and the mother was busy with a, cor, a cause. She, we made her a suffragette. So she was too busy. And Mary Poppins comes in and teaches life lessons to the family. And that was the, the whole idea. Well, he liked our ideas for the story. He liked our songs. And when I played Feed the Birds, he said, that's the whole story in a nutshell. He said, that's right, Walt. That's what it is. Well, at that time, we were talk, calling him Walt. We used to stumble and call him Mr. Disney. He says, no, don't call me that. Call me Walt. So finally, we said, yes, Walt, that's what it's all about. He said, play me that bird lady thing again. So I played Feed, Feed the Birds for him again. I said, how do you guys like to work here? He said, we'd love to work here. Are you kidding? So he says, well, I got a contract for you if you'd like to become our staff songwriters. So he made our career in that one statement. Well, when we were talking about writing for the pictures and writing for assignments, is writing for cartoon characters. Same thing. They're, they're, cartoon characters are real people to me. Winnie the Pooh is just as real as uh, Julie Andrews. I mean, I, I write for that character. And I don't think at all about whether it's animated or whether it's a, a live actor doing it. It's, it's not, not important. It's, it's the personality of the character. I remember we were working on the Winnie the Pooh stuff, and uh, there's a character that we didn't write in the first, first little short film we did, but the second film had a little character who was a stuffed tiger. His name was Tigger. And right as soon as I heard Tigger, I said, oh my god, I got to write that. That's, you know, it's, it's just uh, like it triggers something in you, and you just know. The wonderful thing about tiggers is tiggers are wonderful things. The tops are made out of rubber. The bottoms are made out of springs. I mean, he just, just said it, you know, well, yeah, that was tigger. And that's what I mean, the, the, uh, the thoughts, the thoughts that come out and the melodies go with it. That's how it works. So that concludes our podcast episode all about music publishers. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye. 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 This is oh, kind of like harmonized. That was kind of like a minor chord. <laughs> <laughs>